Welcome to episode 552 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with writer, artist, painter, scholar, Frederick Tutton. We talk with Frederick from his place in New York City about being raised in the Bronx, reading as a child, no money but never feeling unloved, poverty and love, Greenwich Village, Robert Frost, friends, Thomas Mann, Freud, meeting Hemingway in Cuba, being a struggling artist, working with Susan Sontag, publishing houses, workshop mentalities, newness, Roy Liechtenstein, John Updike, bravery, courage, and being drippingly romantic, among other things. A grand conversation with Frederick Tutton this go-round. We have an EW poetic piece titled Tommy T. And of course, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 552 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. sound down on my TV I just can't listen anymore It's like I'm in some foreign country That I've never seen before So I come down here to think about it What in the hell are we gonna do? After all is said and all is done It's just me and you It's just me and you And we are definitely outnumbered There's more of them than us Just when you think you've made a new friend They throw you under the bus just me and you Yeah, it's just me and you I had a friend I used to talk to We used to both sit on the fence But anymore I can't relate to him Cause he ain't got a lick of sense so now I just ask you the question But I'm the one I'm talking to The world has gone out of its mind Except for me and you It's just me and you 
when you think you've made a new friend They throw you under the bus So it's just me and you Frederick Tutton, is that you? Yes, it's me all day. Uh, we really appreciate you being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you. And before we get started, I'd like to share with our listeners a little bit of background information. Frederick Tutton grew up in the Bronx. At 15, he dropped out of high school to become a painter and live in Paris. He took odd jobs and studied briefly at the Art Students League and eventually went back to school, continuing on to earn a Ph.D. in early 19th century American literature from New York University. Tutton's short stories, art, and film criticism have appeared in such places as Art Forum, The New York Times, Vogue, Conjunctions, Granta, The Paris Review, and Harper's. In addition, he has written essays and fictions for artists' catalogs including Ross Blechner, John Baldessari, Eric Fischel, Jeff Coons, and Roy Lichtenstein. He has published five novels. His fiction has been translated into nine languages. Frederick received a Guggenheim Fellowship for Fiction and was given the award for distinguished writing from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He was awarded three Pushcart Prizes and one O. Henry Prize. Troubadours and Raconteurs is very happy to have on the program Frederick Tutton. Again, thank you, sir, for taking time out of your schedule. And um, I, I'd like to get started by just, you know, I guess understanding where it all started. So if you would, tell us about your background and your literary and artistic apprenticeship, as it were. Well, the background, as you noted, uh, I was born in the Bronx. Um, <clears throat> that should be enough. <laughs> explain everything about my life but now in the Bronx in a, I, I'm sorry to talk about my own work it's always embarrassing for I think anyone with conscience but I did write a lot about this in my memoir it's called My Young Life and it's really about my young life growing up in the Bronx and wanting to be a, a, a first a painter an artist and dropping out of high school and long and short of it is the archetypical struggles of someone who has no money and family has no education, formal education whatsoever, although they're wonderfully, passionately intelligent. Uh, but to, 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 to grow up in the Bronx and want to have a life outside of that, a life grander than that, larger than that, more beautiful than that. I, and I read all the time. When I was a kid, you know, I didn't have television. I mean, my grandmother was listening to radio, Italian station, Italian stations and listening to the Italian news and music and it was beautiful. But I didn't have any other venue except books. So books fed my world and uh, brought me out of the sort of sad, sad, dark place I lived in. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, when I even close my eyes and think about it, all I can see is a, a kind of a room. Uh, uh, I, I see a, a kind of sad room with my grandmother on a partition by a screen uh, in her bed and myself on a cot. 
I mean, it's, it was grim. But you know, when I think about that, I think, but yeah, but it was something so beautiful about it because the family was beautiful. We had no money, but I never felt unloved. Uh, that's an extraordinary thing. I know people with lots of good conditions in their life, everything they want when they were kids and parents doted on them, <coughs> but they never felt loved. And uh, I'm going on, I'm just wandering like a kind of unconscious stream of, stream of thought. But yeah, so you talk about my background. So my background was that, poverty but love, poverty and love, <laughs> and a yearning, terribly pro profound, deep yearning to know more, to read more, to see beautiful things, to be part of beauty. I mean, the greatest thing that happened to me was able, once in a while, once in a very long while, be able to go down to Greenwich Village, where I thought the center of the world was, except for Paris, and uh, to see people, you know, in a world that wasn't from the Bronx. It was very different. Everything was different. To go to museums, to go to, I didn't go to galleries. I was afraid to go into galleries. I thought that was only for rich people. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is, I was nourished by books and by a conception that there was a life to be had, that could be had, that might be had, if I could just do certain things, like go to Paris and see a Paris. I was 15 years old when I dropped out of high school. I didn't have one penny in my pocket, but I got a job and I went to the Art Students League, which is very unsuccessful at, at enterprise. They, they humiliated me there. Couldn't draw. But anyway, here's, I'm sorry going on about it, but as I talk about it, I think about this poor boy <laughs> as if it's some other person I'm watching. I'm, I'm watching this young boy and seeing what happened to him. It's kind of interesting, I me mean, taking myself out of it, myself at this point, anyway. But I don't know if I'm answering that. I, oh, you're totally answering. What, what, uh, what, Years are we talking when you were a boy? Born in 1936, which means that this December 2nd, if I can get the cover these next few weeks or two weeks, I'll be 87 years old. Excellent. So I feel that I would feel, I say emotionally, intellectually, intellectually I feel, I don't know what I feel intellectually, but <laughs> emotionally I feel, I feel uh, young. Uh, and people wonder about this. They say, but you're so young. I said, yeah, because I have hope. So I, I feel uh, hopeful. Uh, why? What do I know? The world is crumbling around me. Everything is falling apart. My body is falling apart piece by piece. But I just, as long as I can keep writing, as long as I can keep painting, and just you know, dream of more wonderful things I want to do, I'm feeling fine. I would like to continue this for a while longer, if it's possible. Uh, I, yeah, I know it's sad to say, but I have lots of friends who I came up the ranks, so to speak. Other writers, other painters, especially writers, who have vanished. Who they just either the world has rejected their work. No one wants to know about them anymore. They had their moment, or else they just gave up. They just got tired. They got tired. Tired of rejection. Tired of the struggle. It's a big struggle. You know, Robert Frost, was, one, one day, they asked Robert Frost, what does it take to be a poet? He said, the stomach for, for, the stomach for rejection. <laughs> and I think that's really, you know, it's, it's partly part of it. Part of that kind of rejection that chips away at you and your self-confidence. Uh, we've all had that. But uh, right now, I feel, I, haven't, I just, as we're talking now, I have on my table my new book. Uh, just print it out. Now I have to go over it once again or twice again or 15 times again. But I have a new novel. <coughs> and, 
what astonishes me about it, I, I promise you, I'm not saying this, I promise you, in any vainglorious or braggadocio way. I look at the thing, I've been reading it over since last night, I thought, who wrote this book? It's some kind of young guy wrote this book. Who is this young guy? And, and I think that, that that's what I'm feeling right now. I feel a dream of, of work, of painting, especially painting now. I've been asked to do a show in Miami next year, a, a solo show, again, a second, my second solo show, a third. So, I mean, how many, apart from what could I wish for except health at this point, that I can continue and my, keep my mind active and, 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 and that my friends who I love very much are still around and still alive and we can talk to each other. Well, you know, as you know, probably, I'm sure you know some of that, how when you get older, your friends disappear. Yeah. And they die or they vanish in some way or another. And it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, because you keep thinking of them. You think of them. They never, they never leave. No. They're part of your life. They're in your guts. They're in your heart. They're in your thoughts. You're in your imagination. Sometimes I dream about them. Uh, people who are a little older than myself, maybe. So I grew up, you know, in awe of them. Like Paul Bowles, in a way, like the piece I wrote about Paul. I mean, it was quite wonderful to meet him. I had loved him since I was 16, reading Century in the Sky. I thought, yeah, and going back to the theme of growing up in the Bronx. I read Sheltering Sky when I was about 16 years old. I don't know how I was so precocious to even know about it, but I did. But even that book, think of the romance of it. Anglo phone, living in the Moroccan desert, traveling. I mean, all of it's so wild and beautiful. I think that's the world I want. I, didn't, I went to Morocco eventually, as you know, but with my book in hand for, for bowls. But I mean, what I wanted was a dream of how people could live if they were artists. And all that, they, they didn't have to do both, you know, bourgeois things. They didn't have to, like, go home and cook their dinner. And whatever they did, they did freshly and originally and with excitement and with passion. And sexually, I mean, there was a sexual freedom. You could feel all that. The artists had sexual freedom. The straight people, the, the, the nine to fivers, they had to get married, have children, and, and suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and suffer, right? And suffer, yeah. <laughs> a sufferer, kind, a kind of, you know, feeling of entrapment. I mean, even if, you know, even if you love your family as a solo, a solo person alone, what could you feel? Unless you just love that kind of life, I could never love that. I That's the thing, that. yeah. I mean, I, I wonder often. I'm a domesticated guy, though... It's hard because I feel, as as you uh, just so eloquently described, like an artist too. And my soul, my proclivity is is definitely driven by that mentality you just described, that soulfulness you just described. And when you live domestic as a domesticated person, so to speak, it 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 is frustrating. You know, you look at the machinations of day to day existence in your community, in your workplace, and they're not conducive to to, to feeding that need as an artist. No, I think that uh, there are people who have had conventional lives who wrote beautiful work. I mean, I'm thinking about Wallace Stevens going to work every day at the insurance company and writing the most brilliant poetry. Well, I mean, Carlos Williams was a dentist, right, or something to that extent, or a doctor? Pediatrician. Pediatrician, yeah. that's right, sorry. And Celine was a doctor. There are cases of people like that. Uh <coughs> Uh, of course, because, you know, the thing I love uh, on that argument, the thing I love about Flaubert's statement is uh, he said that for an, an artist has to think like a revolutionary and live like a bourgeois. <laughs> the bourgeois gives you the, the, 
comfort of the, the ability not to be uh, distracted. You know, you have a solid life, your home is there, you go into your withdraw into your private world, but you, you can come and have a meal. You have to go, it's, there's something about stability that's, that's very important. As you know, yes. the writing, you can't help the skeleton. I mean, you can dream about Rambo doing that, but then I think about Rambo. He stopped writing at 19, so what did that show? Right. <coughs> Besides which, I don't like his poetry, so. <laughs> you don't. No. I call, in the novel, I call him the kid, the kid poet. I mean, because I think that a lot of this, and I think, if you, uh, asking me since I'm so opinionated about everything, I think a lot of reputations are built not on the work, but built on the myth mm -hmm. of the writer, the, the kind of person, the thing that they can exploit and tell a story about. There's very not much to tell about Thomas Mann, because he went to his desk at, after breakfast and stayed and worked for hours, and he came back for lunch, and he came back until until dinner when he had dinner with his family. I mean, he's not he's not going to bullfights, uh, not Thomas Mann. He's not, you know what I'm saying. He's not Hemingway. Yeah, but, but yeah, because so much of Hemingway is so puffed up. If you, I, I can put this on record. I don't care. I mean, look, I, Hemingway was was wonderful to me when I went to Havana. I went to his house. He could not have been more generous, more kind, more understanding, and sympathetic to a young boy of 19 who was in awe of him. So I have all that feeling about it. And he, whatever people say about him, in me, with me, he was kind and courteous and thoughtful. It was really kind of wonderful. He didn't know anything about me. I just walked in with my girlfriend because he liked her very much. That helped. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, but the thing about it is that, so book after book after book after book after book, for what? There's one very extraordinary novel, Sun Also Rises. There's a wonderful uh, thing about The Old Man in the Sea. Maybe 10, 12, 14 beautiful short stories. But the other work, if it wasn't the famous Hemingway, who would ever read again uh, uh, Across the River into the Tree? That's a joke, that book. Or the Spanish novel, which is conventional and romantic and sort of sappy in some way, although I agree with the politics of it. But you know what I'm saying? Yes. Why do we go on and on about Hemingway. Right. Because because we we romanticize. He had a right. great we like we'd like to have all of us man woman dog. So go he lives lives in Spain lives in Cuba does the fishing there's a hunting I mean, another world of thinking about what people are and what they could be. So uh, I I just feel but why am I saying that I don't know I'm just saying it because I, what, why why did I even well come? we were talking about basically uh, the life of an artist and, uh, and as compared to being uh, more uh, domestic in, you know and, and quote unquote normal in your in your in your day to day existence uh, and I think you were talking about the stability of how, how being bourgeois that'll give you a stability so you're not starving or, or looking at all these ways to just stay alive and you can thus focus on your art. Exactly, because it takes a lot of free time to devote to the work, especially if you're writing fiction and not just poetry. And if you're writing poetry, well, you can do a sonnet maybe in a di two days, three days, revise it. Right. If you're writing a, a novel, it, that takes time. It takes concentration, stability, it, organization of your time, all of it. And also you have to live in... You know, certain, you know, Freud is so brilliant in so many ways and so stupid in so many ways, so dumb. But one thing he said is that when he was about him himself as a writer, he said, I can't write when I'm too comfortable. and I can't write when I'm too distressed. I have to have just enough discomfort. Mm -hmm. Right. By the irk, uh, the, 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 the pin that 
prods the little oyster to make the pearl. Some kind of has, something has to happen that's not exactly, some kind of emotional discomfort or yearning or something like that. Anyway. It makes total uh, sense. That makes total sense to me. Sense, yeah. So, uh, no, but my, go back again to that idea. My dream was to live a free, a free life, to be free, and to have love. Of course, I always wanted that. I mean, I always wanted to have this. I wanted to have a beautiful companion, girlfriend, gorgeous, and we travel together and sleep together in tents. I don't know what, all kinds of stuff. When you're a kid, I had some of that. <laughs> the nice thing about it is that if I look back, I think, well, you did a lot of what you wanted. You did a lot of what you wanted. You were lucky. Do you think it's easier? It was easier then to uh, to be an artist and to find a way to make ends meet than it is today, or do you think it's the it, same? Uh, it's incomparably more difficult, incomparably more difficult to do it now as a young person. It's it's it's, it's murder. But a lot of young people who go take these MFA programs and they want to be writers, and some of them have trust funds, some of them have some cushion. They know at the end of the run, should bad things happen to them, there's someone, their parents, or someone to come and help them. But that wasn't what happened to me. That wasn't my life. I took a gamble because I could have been crushed. I could have been, and I almost was. I'll make it. I'll make it clearer. When I was living on the Lower East Side in 1960, uh, 1962, I had an apartment, top floor tenement, top floor, um, hot water. Heat was all very good. Bathtub in the kitchen, but we had a, we had the, the toilet was in the in the apartment. Uh, my rent was twenty six dollars a month. Twenty six dollars a month. Now, wow. of course, the thing is that that was the Lower East Side. It was a dangerous neighborhood, uh, but still, and the whole building was filled with people like myself, young people trying to become dancers or painters or writers, and you can't have that now. You have five people in a room living together or there's no there's none of that it's just and it's hard for the young people it's very hard for them uh, among other things that happen is that the venues for success have shut down there used to be tons of mag literary magazines you could publish in and people would notice it but they're shrinking they're shrinking and shrinking now there's only two or three places where anyone will even look at the look at your story you know if you're lucky if any even your friends will look at it anyway but uh, no, from the economic point of view, the young people are really very in, in dire straits. And if they have a cushion, God will help them. But if they don't, what are they going to do? Here's, my, here's what it is. When I started, <clears throat> before I went back to graduate school, I got my doctorate. I got my doctorate, by the way. And I realized I could not survive as a freelance writer. I could not do it. Maybe you could then, but even I couldn't do it then. Now, here's an example. I was writing for Vogue, film criticism. I was writing for the New York Times. I had all these things to, I thought, well, I thought, well, and I know I had finished all my coursework for my doctorate. And I thought, do I want to spend two more years getting my doctorate to, to write my dissertation? Two more years? So I went to some friends, all the people I knew who were reviewing as I was reviewing. To the person, they all had, they would say to me, I have a little something. I didn't know what that meant. I was so naive. Then I realized it's a trust fund. They, all of them, every one of them. The only person who didn't have a trust fund was Susan Sontag. She was doing freelance writing. She's taking her chances. She never finished her doctorate. And when I went to her, I said, Susan, I'm at the point now. I don't know what to do. Should I continue what to do? I mean, City College would like to keep me on, keep me as a professor if I get my, if I get my doctorate. And she said to me, Fred, there are three reasons for teaching. 
June, July, and August. <laughs> and not to mention all the other time. She said, no, no. So I, I went back to graduate school. I went back and got my, I finished my dissertation. What I'm trying to say is there were people who could do it. But it was, it was easier in many, many ways. There were more venues to be published. There were more publishing houses. People were taking, some publishing houses were taking more risk than other publishing houses. Now I can think that no, they get afraid of any risk, afraid of it. I wonder if it's different in Europe than it is here in the United States today for artists. You know, as you just described, it, it is much more difficult to make ends meet uh, in, in the United States as a young person trying to, to be an artist. But do you think it's maybe dif different, better in, in Paris these days or Rome or you no, know, I, Prague? I have Roman friends who are young artists and writers, and they're all faced with the same problem. Rent. You hardly can pay the rent. It's very difficult. I mean, rents are exorbitant everywhere. Any central thought, any center of a city. So, I mean, just, just to survive, unless their parents have money, you can help them a little bit, then it's the same business. Publishing houses everywhere are now the same. All they worry about is the bottom line. Now, they always worried about it. But they can compensate for it. In the old days, they'd say, well, we can publish Faulkner because we're also publishing Bibles and cookbooks. Right. There was always a way to balance it. But they had some pride in the idea of a literary writer. Right. I don't think that exists anymore. I think the term literary writer is a kind of condemnation now. Among certain circles, no. Certain few. But it's not a broad, it's not a broad readership. And I think the same is in Paris, the same is in Rome, the same is in Milano, the same everywhere. The same, same in Berlin, everywhere. Because you have to quantify the, the worth of a person based on money. Based on money. Based on successful sales, a writer is as good as how much money he or she she sells. That's it. So what does that what does that say for where we're going as a species? You know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure that every generation over the last thousand years has said the same thing. It's always a complaint. How more difficult now than it was before? I'm sure of it. So when I hear myself say this, I think be careful. Because, you know, don't measure it by your experience. There are tons of people have gone through so much more, worse. Uh, I mean, think of the writers during the American Depression or the painters, how much they had to go through. They, they could hardly make a living to, to feed themselves. If it wasn't from things like WPA, the, the writers, the workers, art product, project, and state-supported, state-supported stuff that kept them afloat. People like Jackson Pollock, even. But now, I think that today... If today, here's what I want. I, want, I, want, I really want to say this. Go ahead. <laughs> Most young people now go, who want to be writers, or say, or poets, they take an MFA. It's matter, now it's a matter of almost getting your certificate. But does, what does that mean? That you have, you have, you've been authenticated as a serious writer because you get your MFA? The problem with it is that most MFA people courses in the MFA program, which I directed for 20 years. Mostly, they're too expensive for most people to go to, so you always get a certain kind of white privilege, and people who have money to go to the better, the better so-called better places. Why are they better? They're better, not only because the faculty is better, because they have connections to the outside world, agents and things like that. But you're paying 50, 60, 70, $100,000 a year to take writing classes? Mm -hmm. You come out, you've got no skill? You can't, you, can't, you can't be a carpenter, you can't be an electrician with that education, you have nothing. So I think what happens is already the freeze is in, the fear. If I don't get an agent, if I don't get a publisher, what's going to happen to me? I put all this money in. That's part one. Part two, 
the, the workshop mentality has permeated everyone. So that, that the agent looks at it. Agent, I know this is true because I've, I've had people I've sent to agents who say to me, I can't work with her or him because I want to be able to craft the book to make it right, ready for the, for the editor. So we go through, an agent has to interfere with the work, the agent, the editor gets the work, and then they, they have their own idea. What are they, what are they after? They're after selling a, publishing a book that will make money. If they don't make their own salary in a year, they have no job. Right. The, 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 and the conglomerates, the bookkeepers are after them. How much money did you pull in? How much money, here's your salary, how much did you bring in? So they're all frightened. How can you create, how can there be fresh, innovative, crazy, wonderful, aberrant, but, but inspiring books, paintings, painters can do it. Because the crazier you are as a painter, the better you are. <laughs> no, you don't need 100, you don't need 50,000, 30,000, 40,000 people to buy a painting. You know, five or six people, and you can live like a king or a queen. Right. So the art world is very different from this. You can be innovative. They want innovation. They yearn for innovation. The literary world. So here we have the stepping stones to getting a book published. And then at the bottom of it, the editor has to bring it to a committee. So the committee has to go over the book. If the committee finds fault with it or they're frightened to publish it, you don't get the book published. All those stages, there was a time when the editor, like Maxwell Perkins, read the book, took the book, and at the end of it. So we have now writing by committee, writing by approval of conglomerate bookkeepers. That's it's incredible. I mean, so what, what, who's going to come? Do you see a book? Let me be frank. Do you see a book in the last 20 years that you can say is sh shockingly brilliant, fresh and crazy and wonderful? Can you? There are wonderful books. There are good books. There are readable books. But a book that really just shakes you up and says, my God, no one's writing like this. No, I don't. And I know a few people, I think, that have that in them, but they don't see it possible that it would ever be published. And they've given up on it and it's sitting on a shelf somewhere they don't even try to publish it i know a few guys like that because they see it they see the world of uh writing as you do well as, as i know it to be yeah the is then then having said that then the question is what do you do about it right or, or, what, what's your next step put it on the shelf and go away from it or find some other way oh, okay and since this is after all me talking, and I've been invited to talk about myself. I don't feel I'm doing something untoward. But here's a case in point. I wrote my first novel uh, called The Adventures of Mao on the Long Watch. And I was, sort of, I was sort of around the publishing world because I was writing for Vogue, and I was writing. The people knew me a little bit, and they encouraging me, let's see your first novel, let's see your first novel. So I write the novel exactly as I wanted. It's... it's, it's, it's uh, what I wanted was to do something shattering. I wanted that. I thought about that. I wanted to break the conventional novel. I wanted to break the formulaic conventional novel and say, look, for good or for bad, here's my proposal for what, what, what writing could be, what literature could be. It went first to uh, an editor who had been friendly with me, very friendly with me, at a major publishing house, Ross Ross and Giroux, who one day had a secretary call me to have lunch with the, with the editor, who then whereupon told me the following. If I didn't know you, I would think this book is a put-on. <laughs> Andy Warhol put-on. Andy Warhol was a put-on. Now, now he makes so much money to be claimed that. And I, I was shocked. I said, he said, he said, not only that, you're a very warm person. This is a very cold novel. And then the conclusion was, but we'll still be friends. We're still friends. It's not going to affect our friends. He never answered my call for a year. 
Now, what happened? I tried everyone, every publisher, every person, rejection, but not only rejection. Now, let me, let me make it clear to the young people. I hope are listening to this. Young people, when you get rejection, really take it in stride because sometimes, most of the times, 90% of the time, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. They just got frightened by the newness of what you're doing. And your second thing is, when you're not famous, they just piss all over you because you're nobody, you have no threat, you can't retaliate, you're nothing, you're no one. So the remarks I got for this book, which was heartfelt and yearning to make something wonderful and fresh, what I got, why are you sending me this book? It's not a novel. Uh, well, I, had an, I had an agent who didn't understand the book, took a chance. Uh, why, horrible remarks, mean and rude remarks to me. Well, I thought to myself, it was turned down by every, every publishing house in America. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? This was 1979, I forgot, something like that. Oh, what am I talking about? It was 1969. 69. 69, yeah. And I said, gee, I'm not going to let this happen. I'll, I don't care. I'll publish it myself. What do I know about that? So I, I knew that, I knew that uh, pirated copies of Lady Chatterley's Lover were being printed in, in the island of Gibraltar. So for some strange reason, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'll get the manuscript. I'll go to Gibraltar to a printer, and I'll have it printed up. I'll get copies sent over to America, and I'll send them to people. That's what I thought. Now, I'm not going to let this book die sitting in a drawer without any sunlight. Never let it happen. And then I, I asked, I was very, very close to Roy Lichtenstein, a painter I admired without any qualification beyond words. I still, still do. He's a great artist. He was a great, great friend and a great artist. And I said, Roy, listen, you want you to do something I'm going, to write, I'm going to put this book together, and would you make a jacket cover for me? Just to have it, just to make a beautiful book. And I had a friend who was a designer, a book designer, and he was doing the design for me. So I had the whole package ready, pretty much. And then some, the bookstore I had been working in when I, when, I left under, when I left graduate school the first time, I was working in a bookstore, and he knew someone who published these kinds of uh, uh, fil film books picture books in the Citadel Press, I think it was called. And he talked to the guy, and the guy said, well, look, if he has Lichtenstein doing the cover, if Lichtenstein will make a, if Lichtenstein will make a silk screen with the book, we'll publish it. And that's exactly how the book came out. Now, this is part, part, that's part one, part two. So after the rejection, after the, my own friendly editor tells me, you know, we're going to still be friends, don't worry. A year later, almost a year to the day, out of nowhere, I didn't even know it. I found it on the newsstand. There was a review by John Updike. Mm. And not just a review, he exactly studied the book so he could talk about the components, what went what, what, with what. And he said, like any work of art, it cuts into consciousness. That was the last one. And this is a review of. Adventures uh, of Mao on the Long Run. Right, your first. My first book. The one that had been rejected totally. So now Updike, Updike liked it. And all of a sudden, you, you won't believe it. Suddenly. Oh, this pariah now is a kind of culture figure. And the very publisher that turned it down called me to dinner and said, quote, our doors are open to you. After yeah. they turned down the book in this sad way. So I'm saying to young people, look, not all stories work out that way. I mean, I was lucky. I, no one, I didn't know how it got to John Up. I have no idea how John Up found it. But... He was remarkable. He remarked about the, the unusualness of it, the freshness of it. That was the, the point. Then later on, he hated me for some reason. I never met him. I never met him. But many years later, he reviewed another book and he destroyed it. 
unfairly, I thought. But be that as it may, my point to young people is this. You know, it's what Robert Frost said, if you want to be a poet, you have to have a stomach for rejection. I guess it's the same thing I'm saying to you. You know, uh, you may be a terrible, by the way, this doesn't mean you, because you're rejected, you're a good writer or a good painter or a good poet. You may be just awful. Maybe that's why you're rejected. But you have to know what you, the difference by you. Yeah. Hemingway said one, one of his wise things. Every writer has to have a very good built-in shit detector. <laughs> be honest with yourself and say, look, this is really kind of crummy. Uh, that, that, even if I made it, I can't. I, I, when children love their own poop and show it to their parents, you know, <laughs> I did, right? It, so you just can't say, you know, this. Oh, oh I, no. What I'm saying to you is, not always are you right. Not always is anyone right about anything. Any one of us. But <clears throat> if that's what you want, don't give up. There are ways to have people find your work. Yeah, and, I, and I guess you don't have a choice uh, to a certain extent as an artist to not give up because if you did give up, it seems to me you'd be profoundly unhappy. But not only that, you know, when, I do, when I had my graduate writing class, I, I say in the first day or second time, I say, look, if you're in this to make money, forget it. Because you may, but most likely you won't. And I say, if you want to make money, go out and sell drugs. But go sell drugs, but don't get caught. Just sell drugs. Because that, you can make quick money that way. <laughs> you know, of course, don't get caught. But you know what I mean? The idea that some, some writers make a lot of money. Some of them, the top level writers, people like, and, and they, have, they, they do what they, they do well. Uh, I, 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 Stephen King. Wait, Stephen King is that his first name? Yeah, mm -hmm. Stephen King. I mean, he does his. He does what he promises to do to you. Unless you want to read the book, and you want to read it because you enjoy it. But that's it. I mean, it's not that these, everything is awful. Everything is different in different ways, with different premises for the approach. So I guess what I'm trying to cheerlead everyone on is to say, it's a miserable time. And the culture is in disrepair. We're all fighting against each other like crazy. But there has to be something that keeps you afloat, you know, still dreaming of beautiful thoughts and beautiful work to do. And if you don't, and what is it, what, you know, as I say, if you don't work the work you want, do the art you want, well, then the only other option I can see is to make money, to be creative making money. Learn how to make money. Money has Making money has its own creativity. Yeah. Do something. What are you going to sit in the house and watch television? At the end of the day, I mean, come back from work and watch, go you see your wife and children have a dinner and go to sleep. Yeah, that's that, that's not so exciting or healthy. If I knew how to make money, I mean, people I know people I know there were people I know who went to city college became immensely rich. They found a way. They became found. Recently, it's all about the computer world. It's all about yes. Culture. I mean, they found ways. They became very rich and donors at the university, but uh, and they came from nothing. So people, you can, there's still some little window of hope to be creative in that arena. It's not always you have to go to uh, get an MBA or go to business school. You can find ways to be creative with making money if that's what you want to be creative. So you've been doing this sort of thing now at least since, uh, well, let's see, 1587. So what, about 72 years or so, right? I published my first novel when I was 35. Oh, so you waited till you're 35. That and that is the mouth. Didn't wait because what happened is I was getting my doctorate at that time. Ah, I was I was at NYU. I was taking my coursework, which was a lot of courses, more than Columbia. And then after I did the coursework, I had to take the orals, which I studied for six months to do the orals. 
after the orals, two years more to write the dissertation, to do the research and to write the dissertation. So I didn't finish. I had my do- I got my doctorate one month before I got my first book published. It both happened at the same time, 1971. I got my doctorate in 71, my book was published in 71. I was also writing my book while I was getting the doctorate. So I was putting it all together. No, I've been at this a long time. Um, yeah, of course I have. I mean, and you've made a living. You've made a, you made a good reputation for yourself. I'm teaching. From teaching, I, I have never. My, my most best-selling book was called "Tintin in the New World," mm-hmm. and that was another. I mean, all it's kind of comical when you come out of it, all right. But there's another book. I mean, I can't tell you the, the way it was treated by my agent. Sent it around. I mean, the disrespect. I mean, after all, people who are writing, making paintings, writing poetry, doing whatever—they're not gangsters. They're not thieves, they're people trying to make something good for the world, nice for the world. So, But you know how you're treated? Like some kind of scoundrel. Like some kind of, what are you trying to give us this book for? You want to, you want us to go to the poorhouse? I mean, I mean, you wouldn't treat a thug that way. Right. You have respect for a mafia guy than you would for, these, for the way you writers are treated. Or yeah. Treated, or artists are treated. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I wonder why that is. You're, you're right. I've noticed that too. I think... Why should that be? What? Because these people themselves are frustrated. I think that a lot of these people are monk, writers and artists monkey. They want to be. They could have been. They want. They aren't, and they're dissatisfied. So they can take out a little revenge on the young person who's still hopeful. <laughs> you have hope. Watch. I'll show you this. I'll crush your hopes. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't want that to happen. No, no. Uh, so we we have. I would say, believe it or not, uh, Frederick, about. Five minutes or so before the time we have set aside is up, uh, we're going to have have to have another conversation if you're willing, because um, we're just getting started here. But I'm, uh, you mentioned your new book. I guess would this be the sixth one then? A bit of yeah. fiction. Sixth novel. Sixth novel. And uh, do you want to share anything about it with us? Or is... two things I want to say. I'm very proud of it. That's why I'm mentioning it. I actually have four Pushcart prizes. I got one since that fire was written. Oh, sorry. Uh, for a short story that we published in um, in, in, um, in Bomb magazine, yeah. Uh, that, so that's my fourth. Four, I'm very proud of that. You know, I I, I invented myself a short story writer, and um, so that was my. And the other thing about the novel is this: I, I want to be able to say it and finish it. I came away from the city during COVID. COVID was crushing, so I'm very I'm old. I thought I get old, but touch of COVID, I'm dead. I'm dead. I ran away, and I sat in a. I sat here. Uh, uh, <clears throat> afraid to go shopping, afraid to do go to a restaurant, just, just imprisoned in my in, in the place I'm staying. The benefit was, no social life, no other life. I just said to myself, I swear to you, I just said to myself, Fred, look. This may be your last shot. Do everything you want, and nothing, no, no, no barriers. Do it. Just do it. Just have fun. I began to write this. I don't know what. I didn't call it a novel. I said, I'm just going to. And you know who the influence was of all the people in the world? <clears throat> was the Italian artist De Chir- or De- Greek Italian De Chirico. He wrote a novel. Mm-hmm. He wrote a novel. And of course, because he was an artist, he had no idea that he had to, he had to be conventional. His work wasn't conventional. 
The novel is strange. It's incomplete. <clears throat> but the lesson of it was this. That all things you are told about in writing are merely imposed conditions and conventions made by others. There's no such thing as a novel that has its own form that dictated by anything, by God or anyone. So I started to write this book. And I said, I, don't, I have no idea of the plot. I have no idea who the characters are. I'm not, I just, just, and, and it wasn't stream of consciousness. It wasn't blue, just blithering, you know, blue sky, blah, bark, bark, dog. No, I started to do it. And it went on and on. And then I took a break because I started to make the drawing. I was making drawings almost every night. I made a drawing. It was not, there was so much time on my hands. So much time. Really, no shopping, no doing, nothing. And so I stopped because I was offered to do a drawing show. So I had my first drawing show. Then I had a second drawing show. I had to make more work. So I couldn't, I couldn't really devote it always to the novel. Then I, had, then I suddenly I got a, a solo painting show in New York, a wonderful gallery, Harper's Gallery. So all of a sudden, I kept thinking, wow, this is a new thing for me. Why? I'm still alive. I'm taking advantage of it because I always wanted to be a painter. And suddenly I'm being asked to, to have paintings. So I had to make paintings. So back and forth and back. But Nazareth. Three nights, four nights ago, I printed it out. It's on my desk. It's done. Here's the thing. I wanted a book just fluid, flowing, reading, that you wanted to read it, but you didn't have to make any sense. Unfortunately, I must say, unfortunately, it makes sense. <laughs> I'm very disappointed in myself. It's, again, all my themes, everything. It's as if all the themes unconsciously came together in this one last novel. I hope not last novel, but for now. All of it. The relationship of men and women. Love and its disappointments. Money and the relationship of money to love. All that is in this book. And it's fluid and it's fresh and I'm very excited about it. I hope everyone else is because I hope I can put it out there. And I think as also, I hope, actually I hope, I hope as a kind of example to young people to say, don't be afraid. I'm at, the end, I'm at the end of the road, and I want to be brave, and uh, I, 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 I want to maybe indicate that bravery is available to everyone for once, once in a lifetime, maybe, or whenever you can, to demonstrate some bravery and courage in your work, do it. That's it. That's what this, this book, I, I, I really, I'm, I must tell you, I, I promise you, I say this without, I, without hubris, I look at it and I say, who wrote this book? When I'm reading it, I think, who wrote it? Who is this person? It's as if some other person wrote it. A young person, a young, young writer of 20, 23, 24. Hmm. Energetic, prose is, prose is energetic, and it's passionate, and it's so romantic that I want to, I, I realize, Fred, come on, stop. What world are you talking about? This is like, does it, not, even, not even Byron. Nothing <laughs> swooning with love. But it's, it's drippingly romantic. And I don't care. I just don't care. I don't want to be cool. You know, when I, when Suntag, Susan Suntag, I was very close friends all her life. And so I loved her very much. And when I did a novel uh, called The Green Hour, which again, it's very much like this book in the sense that it's about a woman in love or people in love and what happens to them. And I remember when she read The Green Hour, she gave me a beautiful little blurb. You know what she said to me? She said, Fred, she was thinking about the period of the uh, of the sixties and early seventies. She said, "Why did we think we had to be cool?" 
I said, she said, you know, what that meant was often it meant like strip away the adjective, tone down the prose, distance yourself, cool, like an object, like something without a personality. And we began to laugh. You know, at a certain moment, you, I, I feel so, I feel so much this. It's my first novel, which was a, designedly a work that was a statement. It had very other benefits, but it was a statement about writing. And now I feel all intentions of anything to do with the literary life or world or thought has vanished. And all I am interested in now is a, 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 a creation made from love and about love. Well said. Well said. I'm Fair. so happy that we met. I'm sorry, I wanted to tell you, thank you. I love your beard. Thank you, sir. Yours is looking you. good, too. I'm having a little, yeah. No, not yours. I wonder if I shouldn't try to make it more full. Yeah, we both have this white hair. How old are you, may I ask? I'm 57. Oh, my God, you youngster. <laughs> oh, I wish I could be 57 again. Well, I hope I'm as cool as you and uh, as, as wise as you and as gracious as you when I'm 87. Well, cent'anni. 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 And ci vediamo. Spero, spero senz'altro. Please say hello to, uh, you know, Mr. Pavese for me. I will. And say hello. And I hope I, I, I don't lose contact, not just about this. Don't lose contact. If you ever come to New York and I'm in the office, get together, let's have a lunch, let's do something. That would be an honor, sir. Thank you. Really, it's too short. To, when you like people, you know how it is. You have a sympathetic reaction. You feel the person. I feel that about you. Your face, everything about you is, tells me, this is a warm person. This is a sympathetic person, intelligent, charming person. Please, let's not lose touch, okay? Thank you. Yes, sir. I Thank you. I, I, I feel the same about you, and, and thank you for saying those kind words. Oh, and tell, tell Iris I said hello when you're talking with her. Tell, I told her we're doing the conference. She said, oh, that's so much fun. She wrote to me today. That's so much fun, she said. So I'll tell her. We, oh, yeah, I'll tell her about it. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful afternoon, and uh, I really appreciate being on Troopadours and Rock Honduras. My pleasure. My great pleasure. Keep it down. I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to let you free, free you from this. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. Keep it down. be some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Plowman dig my earth None will let Be kind of there are 
Tommy T. Random kombucha flavors of all sorts. Lines of plenty justify concocted cohorts. And summertime comes in June with a plume and feather. Whether you know it or not, you're tethered. You anthropomorphic loony tune. This life is such a beautifully meandering before and after noon. Accepting the likes of us, we profligate handsome buffoons.
And there you have it, episode 552 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Frederick Tutton and these musical artists, the Lonious Monk, Willie Nelson, Jimmy Hendricks, Miles Davis and Charlie Parker, Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.